Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Black British Lives Matter. The podcast. I'm Lenny Henry. And I'm Marcus Ryder. This is the podcast where we explore why and how Black British Lives Matter. Building on our book, Black British Lives Matter, available now in all good bookshops. Now, most of the time, the podcast explores a different aspect of British culture or life, from Black British food matters to Black British hair matters. But this episode, we're doing something a little different and shining a light on one big idea. An idea that many people are now saying is the only way to solve racism and racial injustice once and for all. Marcus, Rontings, reveal what today's episode is all about. Okay. Well, Lenny, today we are looking at the idea of reparations. According to the dictionary definition, open quotes, reparations are help or payment that someone gives another person for damage, loss or suffering that they have caused that other person close quotes. And in this case, we are talking about payment to black people for slavery and colonialism. Ha! A big payback! I love the idea, but I have um, a lot of questions. So let's introduce our guests that might be able to shed some light on this very, very serious issue. We have two fantastic guests today, possibly the leading experts on reparations in the UK. First, we have Professor Kahindi Andrews, a regular opinion writer for The Guardian. He launched the first black studies degree in Europe and is author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World, along with several other books that he's written. And of course, he contributed an amazing essay on why black British education matters in our very own book, Black British Lives Matters. And we are also joined by the amazing Esther Stanford Kahosi, a reparations activist and lawyer, co-vice chair of the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe. Esther is currently completing a PhD on the history of the international social movement for African reparations in the UK. That's good, Marcus. It sounds like we've got a dream team to discuss why reparations matter. Esther and Kahinde, welcome to the Black British Lives Matter podcast. Happy to be here. It's nice to see you too. You look great. (laughs) It's weird doing Zoom, isn't it? Because it's like a radio show, but I can see you. (laughs) <laughs> it's really bizarre. We might have to play some tunes in a minute. Um, first things first, let's ask the most basic of questions. Marcus gave the dictionary definition of reparations, but how do you both um, define reparations? I'm going to start with Esther first. Could you define reparations for us, please? So in the uh, reparations movement that I'm part of, known as the International Social Movement for African Reparations, we use two main frameworks in the International Social Movement for African Reparations. The first being the conceptual framework uh, advanced by Professor Chimwezu at the first conference on reparations for enslavement, colonization and neocolonization. Uh, in Abuja in 1993. And Chimwezu emphasizes that reparation is a mostly about making repairs, self-made repairs on ourselves. So 
Even if there are monies, he's saying the focus is on us being in the driving seat of determining what those repairs are. Now, the second one is known as the operational um, uh, framework on reparations, which is the framework of reparations under international law that was codified in 2005. And it's basically called the basic principles and guidelines on the right to a remedy and reparation for victims of violations of international human rights law. And that's reparations for me. Um, Kehinde, could you define reparations? I mean, well? I mean, I mean, I always go to Malcolm X because, you know, why not? Why go to anyone else? Right. And Malcolm says, look, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and you only pull it out six inches, well, that's not, that's not progress, right? Even if you pull it all the way out, that's still not progress. You have to heal the wound, right? And that's what reparations really is, right? It's saying, look, there's damage that has been done and it needs to be healed. And if it's not healed, then we haven't made any progress. I mean, Marcus talked about reparations for slavery and reparations for colonialism. Should we lump them together or do we have to view them separately? Kendi, let's start with you. Are they two different arguments or part of the same thing? Well, you can't see them separately. I mean, slavery can't happen without colonialism. So my family is enslaved on the colony of Jamaica. The idea these are separate is actually one of the worst ways you understand this whole problem. So when slavery ends, it's not like my Jamaican family were all happy. No, they were colonial subjects. They were deeply poor, which led to them migrating in the first place. And one of the most powerful calls of reparations came from the Af- Organization of African Unity in the 90s. Because people forget that slavery decimated Africa. And actually the colonization that happens after slavery is only possible because slavery has destroyed the continent. So these aren't different things. This is really the same thing. It should be accounted for together. Um, what are the, so just talk us through, Kahindi, the arguments for reparations for slavery. Well, I mean, they're pretty straightforward, right? Like there was 300 years of unpaid labor that, that has, we, we literally built the modern world. Uh, there's, so there's the economic money that we should have been paid. There's also then the trauma. Um, there's also the obvious disparities. So if you look at life in the Caribbean um, and you compare it to life here, there's a huge gap, right? And that gap needs to be needs to be changed. Right? So there's, there's, the logic of it is really unassailable. There's no good argument to say the West doesn't owe a massive debt to the places that it's, that it's pillaged. So these are countries in Africa. Um, just walk us through that. So would every country in Africa have to make a case for this? How would it work? I mean, this is the, so the organization African Unity wanted reparations. They wanted it as the organization, right? Saying actually it's not one nation or the other nation. It's about as a continent, we need to have repair. If you look at now, CARICOM countries, the Caribbean community are also asking as a region, uh, can we have, you know, and it's not, again, Esther's right here. It's not just money. There's other kinds of repair, but it really is saying, look, look at the world today. Look at the imbalances. They are obviously there and they cannot be explained by anything else other than slavery and colonialism. And therefore there's a debt that should be paid back. Esther, I'm I'm curious. When I first invited you onto the podcast, you had some reservations about the title of this particular episode, Black British Reparations Matter. Now, obviously, I'm very happy you agreed to take part. But can you explain why you had those reservations? Yeah, as I said to you, is that for me, knowing what I know about the history of the movement, I am doing my PhD in it. um, There is no such thing as a Black British Reparations Movement. And I was concerned that this podcast would actually be part of trying to frame the movement as a black British movement. And what I mean by that is that people of African, African Caribbean, even who might self-define as black British, we've never actually defined the the movement as a black British one. That's largely because many of us 
Our origins come from outside of the UK. We can trace direct family connections to parts of the Caribbean, other parts of the Americas, and certainly Africa. And so it means that our perspectives have often been quite global. And because Britain had, and I would say continues to have an empire, it means that, you know, our family lines are all over the planet. So we can't separate ourselves as a black British constituency. So you're not arguing and we're not arguing for reparations for, quote unquote, black Brits. British people, yeah. So black people with British passports. We are arguing for reparations globally for the black black people in Africa, for the diaspora. Yes. All right. So even though Lenny and I have done Black British Lives Matter, you know, yeah. and black British people are part of that diaspora. We reparations is a global um issue. Yes. And actually that is the beauty about the movement here in Britain. It has never actually seen itself just as a British thing. It's always, you know, defined reparations in a pan-Africanist, pan-Caribbean, and internationalist way. It's quite unique. You know, five years ago, I felt reparations was a fringe idea, you know. Because I could imagine people going, when is it going to stop? When are they going to stop moaning? They're here now. They've got houses. They've got jobs. Um, you would hear about it eventually. But now I feel I hear about it much, much more. It's a regular thing now, reparation. We want to get paid. Some kind of social engineering, some kind of, en- some kind of injection of capital, of support into our communities. Kendi, can you explain the history behind the idea and how it seems to have gained more public traction recently? Yeah, well, I mean, reparations is as old as slavery and colonialism, right? People have been arguing for reparations for centuries. Um, I mean, one of the earliest is after the Civil War in in America when abolition had abolition, and there's this famous the famous phrase um, 40 acres and a mule," where African Americans were promised that in reparations, and then it was taken away from them. They never got uh, it. They never got it. So some of them got it, and they took it back. So they literally never got it. About forty acres on a mule. We're going to give you. Uh, we yeah. had some thoughts about. This. Yeah. How about two acres and a dog? <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, that is the history of America, though. Like, give it one and take it with, take it with the other. Um, you have. I mean, you could argue the Haitian Revolution was a perfect example of reparations, but they just they just they just took back the nation, but then had to actually pay uh, reparations to France for the temerity. And in fact, Britain does have. You could call it reparations when uh, we paid the large amount the government has ever paid for anything when they paid to slave owners uh, to repair the damage lost for the end of slavery. 3,000 families, right? Uh, it's more, it was 50,000 individuals. Um, the UCL has a whole doc, uh, document um, database you can look at and track where all the money went. Um, but yeah, there's been activists have always called for there to be repair. And, and like Esther says, and the, there's a strong European uh, movement. I say a strong movement in Europe, not a European movement. Has been a Pan African movement. Has been a Caribbean movement. But I mean, if you're saying why is it now? It's George Floyd, isn't it? I mean, like everything else, it's George Floyd. The, the killing of George Floyd sparked a new conversation, but unfortunately, it's been a pretty shallow conversation. And I, and I specifically, when the way that reparations is brought up now. It doesn't really resemble anything that I would think of as reparations. So, for example, um, the Lloyds of London, who actually, because they're so embedded in the slave trade, like started off insuring the merchant trade, as they call it, insuring slave trade, made is Britain's largest financial entity by far. 
I've been sued multiple times in America for reparations because you have all the records and it's so obvious. And they've always said, no, 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 we're not involved. Back off, back off. But the killing of George Floyd meant when they came out and said, actually, yeah, we have a problem. We want to pay reparations. But their reparations is a diversity scheme and giving a bit of money to charity. I think that's much. I mean, that's straight down, which ridiculous. I mean, it's, I think, I mean, that reparation like that is just offensive. So that's why I, I worry that when it comes in that kind of wave of post George Floyd, it actually starts to become meaningless. And actually, it, it seems to me there's a unification thing that needs to happen in terms of who's asking. Um, if I know collective bargaining is a, is a archaic structure right now, but it seems to me that the more we can be under one umbrella, perhaps, There'll be some movement down the road. I mean, now, to be honest, I didn't need a lot of convincing on the moral argument for reparations. The principle of compensated people and communities for historic harm seems pretty hard to argue against. But let's talk practicalities. Esther, can you explain how that actually work? How much money are we talking about? As a black man, will I get a check in the post? Would the postman come round and count out dollar bills? Or would the government of Barbados just get a large sum of money and say, Guan, what would happen? Yeah, no. Um, you see, again, the definition of reparations is important. Uh, you're not going to get a check in the post. Uh, reparations is not a paycheck. It's not even payback like that. Uh, you have to understand that reparations is holistic. It includes that restitution. So part of what the reparations struggle has been about, and that's why we can't divorce the history of Pan-African organising, which is the dominant organising tradition in Britain in terms of its longevity, uh, has been about restitution. And so the oldest forms of reparations that were argued for in Britain uh, by people of African heritage was the right to return to our homeland that we've been kidnapped from. Okay, and to also benefit from everything that has been stolen from our homeland, which is cannot be reduced to a finite sum of compensation, especially when uh, we don't have uh, an international economic order that actually uh, is fair to nations in Africa and the Caribbean. So in the 70s and 80s, uh, many of those newly independent countries were arguing for a reform of the international economic order, okay, because we're still being pillaged uh, today. And in fact, to far greater degrees, I mean, there was a report that was done in 2016, uh, Britain's new colonialism, that spoke of how 101 companies registered on the London Stock Exchange control all of Africa's key commodities and energy resources. So this notion of a finite figure, but there are different calculations that people are doing around the world. But as you've said, uh, Lenny, we need to Put, you know, come together, put all that research together, not just have one expert here and one expert there. And this has to be part of growing the infrastructure so that we can be one and we can exercise a unified voice. That process is underway. So we are still in the process of accounting in terms of the harm. And research is being uncovered every day that speaks to more and more losses you know, more companies, more, you know, wealth that has been hidden. So how can we say this is a finite sum that we want? Actually, what's happened to us, it will take generations to actually properly repair. So I'm, I'm curious, could, could you argue, and I'm pretty sure you're going to argue against this, but I'm just going to ask, right, but could you argue that the aid that um, Western countries give, that European countries give to Africa and the Caribbean, could... 
could people argue that's a form of reparations? Because they're saying that they are they are aiding that, they are giving money, they are repairing the damage that they've done. Lenny shaking no. his head for, for the podcast <laughs> listeners and, and Kendi shaking his head. I'm just asking. We're, we're all shaking our heads. Everybody's shaking no, their heads. I'm, I'm about to be kicked out of the, of the recording studio. It's a different thing. But I'm still asking. Well, the emergency, emergency aid is one thing. Explain the difference between different. aid yeah. and reparations. So I, mean, I think there's a, there's a strong argument actually aid and development aid in the way that it's used is actually a bigger part of the problem rather than the solution. And that's not an anti-aid argument. There is obviously lots of good work that happens. Um, it's things like common relief, et cetera, like you have. Don't bring me into this. No, I want to, I make it personal. Like, oh, really? That's some good work, right? Because, because of the problem, there, people are dying. And so you want to go and you want to try and fix it. You want to try yeah, and help, I think, right? I think I read something that you wrote where you talked about this being. Um, dealing with the symptoms and not the actual problem. Yeah, it deals with the symptoms. Yeah. And the problem is if we, if we spend too much time dealing with the symptoms, we don't actually deal with the problem and it can actually make the problem worse. But then more generally, this more specifically, actually most of the aid budget from like the government, uh, US government, UK government, isn't that benevolent. It's just made it worse. And actually, if you look at a lot of those aid budgets, that's what they do rather than trying to solve the problem, which obviously reparations is the complete opposite where you're trying to say, how do we actually heal the nation so that you don't need aid at all in the first place? So after almost being kicked off the podcast by asking the, the aid question and having a resounding, Marcus, why are you asking such a silly question? Here, here comes my next question then, right? With regards to discussions around reparations in Britain, how do they differ from discussions that are being had around the world? I'm thinking specifically about things that are happening in the Caribbean and recently speeches I've heard from the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. How are discussions different in the Caribbean or different in Ghana or different in um, Britain? Are there certain trends that we can notice in when reparations are being talked about? In the UK, the movement has been led from the bottom up by affected communities who have become a third force, as it were, uh, because we are not represented, even though many of us have ancestry in Africa and the Caribbean, uh, we are not represented by African or Caribbean nation states. And so uh, in the UK, we have gained success in actually representing ourselves. We've been able to gain the support of the Green Party of England and Wales, Labour Party members as well. The Green Party of England and Wales in 2020 passed a reparations motion for the whole of England and Wales in support of our strategy. What are we calling for? We're calling for a, a ground up uh, commission of inquiry, uh, sort of a, a combination between a truth commission and a commission of inquiry. It's known as the all party parliamentary commission of inquiry for truth and reparatory justice. And we have got the support of that from uh, Labour Party members, Green Party members and cross party members. And in fact, in October 2020, we were successfully able to establish with parliamentarians the all party parliamentary group for African reparations, where we have a dedicated body of parliamentarians cross party, including a Tory, which you need to have discussing this issue and globally what does this look like for our people and so we are actually in a vanguard position but everyone's looking at america or the caribbean and we're not looking and at what is happening here 
and how we're actually setting good practice for how you engage communities, how communities can have a say, how we bring out everybody who's doing work so that we're not working against each other. Let's pull it all together so that we can have an effective uh, conversation with the British state and society around repair. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I guess this is part of... What Esther's talking about is being in the room and having these conversations with the descendants of former slavers is a, it's a place where you don't really want to be, but you've got to be there. But my worry about this uh, is having had truck with the government in the last few years, uh, as part of our Black Lives Matter and Access All Areas journey is that you get in the room, they're very nice to you. And then as soon as you're gone, you're gone and they don't have to worry about you anymore. Exactly. And I wonder. And this is, sorry, me going off script here, but I wonder if, how do we get them to stay there and actually do the work that makes change happen? Yeah, well, I think the, the, the issue is with reparations is that, you know, when you actually start to look at the kind of things we're talking about, whether it's money, and it's a lot of money, so in the Caribbean, estimates are anywhere up to like 15 trillion and like those, this is the kind of figures we're talking about. And then you're looking at things like the, solving the climate crisis and we're sort of looking at uh, social repair. It's such an enormous amount of money. If we're honest, this is never going to happen. Never like, you're not going to get politicians sitting down and saying it's going to happen. 
the only way, and Esther mentioned this word previously, is revolution, right? Like you have to make it happen. You have to demand that it happens. Um, it's not going to be the, it's not going to be the thing that's won by getting people on board because they're not going to be on board. But there are ways and models that says, actually, no, we organize ourselves. We, we demand this and we take it and we take our reparations because frankly, that is probably the only way we're going to get justice. Well, let's, uh, let's just calm Malcolm X over here down a little bit. Let's just put the guns down because revolution is a very powerful word and we've done revolutions and it works. But it has a cost. Is there? Is it feels to me like trying to encircle all of these organisations and trying to get them to work together? From my point of view, is a way of really pushing the argument along. But it has its pitfalls, doesn't it? Oh, it most definitely does. But any movement has its pitfalls. The climate movement has it. Women's movement has it. You don't just have one happy family. You have contestations because we have different ideas about what the nature of the problem is. We have different strategies and tactics. But what you get is a broad coalition or a front that is pro something, i.e. pro reparations, as opposed to the detractors who are, you know, hostile to it. So that's really what we build. We build that consensus amongst people, people within our communities, but across all communities. And now there's not just, I mean, when people talk about reparations, they often begin with reparations for slavery and colonialism. But every, literally almost all groups on the planet have some type of reparation struggle. It is an international movement and the movements are talking to each other. Aboriginal people in Australia, indigenous peoples of the Americas who live on reservations Yeah, you can't tell them that reparations is just paying them money. They want America back. They want their land back. And in fact, that is a movement, land back. Yeah, that's a revolution. Exactly. And you cannot have reparations without land because wealth comes off of the land. And we haven't spoken about what the movements have actually envisioned as repair. The first repair I spoke about was actually stopping the recolonization of Africa and stopping that continued pillage so that we can have access to the resources that we are entitled to have a say on, as opposed to multinational corporations. So all of this notion of even aid would not be, you know, even though it's a form of dependence in imperialism, it wouldn't be necessary because people would have the resources they need to live in their own societies. We wouldn't have people literally dying to cross the Mediterranean because their own lives have become, you know, you know, unworthy because they cannot live, they cannot breathe in the countries that they're born in because they have been pillaged for centuries. So the, the big picture is about having an Africa that is repaired. I feel that I'm being that annoying guy now, right? As I was the annoying guy asking about aid before. So apologies, right? Don't but make the, that sound like it's a one-time thing. <laughs> not that guy all the time. Right, but I just want to, you know, how would, Kendi and Esther, how would you um, ask somebody saying that, listen, I can understand the argument before African countries got independence, but now in terms of land, We've got governments. If they want to make deals with multinational corporations, you know, that's to do with the African governments. That's got nothing to do with slavery. That's got nothing to do with colonialism. You know, and those governments have voted in. A lot of them. Some of them aren't. But a lot some, of them, some of them, some of them aren't. But, in Africa. but a lot of them are voted in by the people of Africa. They are representative of the people of Africa and, and the Caribbean. There aren't a lot of coups in, in the Caribbean. So... 
you know, what what reparations are we are we talking no. about when we're talking about about land? And I can see again people on the podcast. I'm looking at Zoom here, Damn. and I can see that Hindi and who are you? Now they're just laughing at me. So, so go ahead, yeah. Kahindi, you're the person yeah. What's the matter with you? No, I mean, I think this is why the, this is why the Malcolm X thing makes up, is the, is the metaphor, right? If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, that's not progress. You could make the argument that independence is pulling the knife out six inches. I probably would have made the argument. But if you look historically, there is a reason why, um, the richest continent in terms of mineral wealth, in terms of farmland, in terms of everything is the poorest continent on the planet. And that is a direct legacy of slavery and colonialism. So when you have these governments that are making deals, one, trace back those governments, most of them are reactionaries and related to deeply corrupt and deeply corrupt, not because they're African, they're deeply corrupted by European, American business interests, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're actually looking at what's happening today, and there's no way to, there's no way you can possibly explain that without this history of slavery, colonial, et cetera, et cetera, and the debt that needs to be repaid. So of course, the, the thing I always say to people is, look, don't think about slavery as something that happened 200 years ago and then finished. It's something that happened. And then we had colonialism. And then now we have unjust trade practice, et cetera, et cetera. There is a continuum that puts black life at the bottom, white life at the top, and a hierarchy in between. And if you look at global poverty today, that is what you see. If you look at global life expectancy, that is what you see. So we're still in the same system. Uh, it just looks a bit different. So they're still there for you still owe the debt. So the, so the reparations are not just for past harm, not just for, for slavery and colonialism. The reparations are for ongoing issues yeah. Yeah. with regards yes. to what you see as unfair trade patterns with regards to if you look more locally at communities racism in the schooling system it's it's yes. it's not yeah. just let's add up how much we're owed due to slavery so to speak to put it bluntly or how much we might how much damage colonialism did it's an ongoing Yes. Thing. Okay. And in fact, in fact, all reparations movements and even all of the legal strategies, they start with the current day harm and then you trace back historically to when it began. It's the media that gives it this spin that we're saying, oh, pay us for what happened to our ancestors. Actually, no, you start with the, the, the deprivation, the economic, you know, dispossession today. And then you look at the history of how these systems were introduced to understand why that is the case. Okay. Are there any examples of reparations working in, in practice? I'm thinking, I, th- I think I read that Germany paid compensation to the victims um, of, I oh know it was France that paid compensation to Algeria. Algeria. For mm. example, or Australia. Holocaust reparations. There's Holocaust reparations. Can can you talk through some reparations that have worked in practice, whether you think those are good models, whether yes, you think they're I, bad I, models? I'm interested in this because unless we have a model where it, where it has worked, we're sort of shooting blind, aren't we? Where, where, is there any examples of it actually working and it happening? And, and not just money, but some kind of social infrastructure being put in place. I would say that the, I mean, the most famous model is the Jewish model which I think we need to study very deeply in terms of Holocaust reparations. Now, people think about the the compensation that, that went to Israel, but actually the first act of reparations in that case was establishing the state of Israel as a homeland for a people that had been uh, dispossessed of a homeland. Yes. Now, it's an important model because it becomes then a template by which all other cases 
of reparations in the last century in this one uh, become judged. Yes, it, that becomes the litmus test. Now, we, can, we, we have to explore that model because how did the state of Israel get established? Let's look at Palestine and the fact that Palestinian people would say they've been dispossessed of their right to have a nation state. So when people hold that up as a successful model, I would argue it's not, simply because what it has left is a conflict that actually ends up, you know, involving many other, you know, nations and peoples on the planet around whether they're pro-Israel or they're going to be pro-Palestine. Yeah, that is not a model that African people who are the mothers and fathers of human civilization can emulate. And I would argue there is no successful model, even though there's been examples of groups that have got land back and indigenous nations. You can't say, you know, Americans, uh, indigenous Americans have had reparations when they live on reservations. Okay, you can't. So we are yet to see the model of global justice because a lot of the reparation struggles have been fought individually as specific groups without a kind of glo- a sense of global justice and how like then so we can interface as humanity. There's so yeah? many people that have been victimized by this horrible crime against humanity that it's, it almost feels like we're screaming into the wind and it's a, a circle that won't ever be squared. So I, I hear you. What, what, no, it will be. It will be. The, the, but the work is being done with movements who are transforming the way that we order our societies. So I would say the most successful to complete would be land back movements where people are gaining access again to territory. And remember, even this notion of 40 acres and a mule was about let us have the land so that we can reestablish ourselves. We can build community. We can grow our own food. We can do these things in collectives because it's only in collectives that we have any chance of group survival. And that's what people are doing all over the planet. They might not be calling it reparations movements. It might be called sovereignty movements, Lambat movements. But that transformation is happening. And it's happening now more than ever because we have a world that is in peril. So, Kendi, what's your view on any successful models or any templates that we we could look at? As I said, I was really interested in... Um, the, the France and, and Algeria. Then there's also some limited compensation with the British government to to Kenya. Or there was a, I think there was a court case recently. Are, are there any successful m- models or even flawed models? Yeah, I mean, not really. Esther's right on this. No, not at all. Because if you look at the the basic framework, it's the same problem, right? So France and Algeria. I don't think you're going to find Algerians saying, yes, we're happy with the reparations that were repaired and, at all. And what you tend to have is it tend to be quite limited. Um, the Ken- uh, Britain and Kenya would be the perfect example where it's paid out to a few families and doesn't actually represent all, what did Britain do to Kenya as a, as a whole, right? Um, and I think that's the... Can you explain this is my, the Kenya and, and Britain one? Well, so Kenya, there was... Well, there was Britain did lots and lots and lots of damage in in, in Kenya. Uh, there was a Maramat uprising in Kenya and the British government was found because the British... They destroyed lots and lots of archives and evidence around this, but was found to be culpable in basically killing a lot of people and, and really like that, um, 
like torture, things like this. And because of this, look, if you if you can prove that there's something like that has been done and you can you've got the descendants for it, then you can say, look, go to court, you get some money. But it just goes to those families, right? It doesn't go to the bigger picture. It isn't a great massive amount of money. It doesn't repair any of the damage done. Although, look, it's 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 not a negative thing. I don't think anybody says negative, but it does show you some of the the limitations of where we're going. And I think my worry is with reparations. The way that it's been talked about now is that we will have some kind of reparations, but it won't. It will be the Lloyds of London reparations. Or how close do you think less? we are? Uh, I mean, to any kind of reparations at all. I know as to saying there's been a movement, but how close do you think we are to getting something? Uh, no. We've had, we've had something, though. So probably we've had something, right? Lawyers of London has given it as a, a diversity scheme. University of Glasgow has put, uh, put some um, scholarships out there. This is my worry. This is what reparations baby becomes. Steps, though, right? Right. Uh, baby steps. I don't even know if it's baby steps. I think pretending something reparations when it's not is worse than not having reparations at all. So define, defining what true, in terms of like diversity markers, defining what true reparations would be is obviously the argument here when you go in the room, Esther. Well, well, absolutely. And what we constantly have are people imposing definitions on us. So I'm, I work as part of movements. The movements are the ones doing this stuff every day. We're not theorizing about it. We live this reality. We're building those connections. I'm involved with the movement in the US. I'm involved with the movement in Africa. I'm involved with the movement in the Caribbean and have roles on many different representative structures. So I know what's happening. Um, how soon are we? If you broaden your mind about what you think reparations looks like, what I would say is that we are in a process of repair. Uh, you know, Kehinde mentioned Haiti. That was a form of self-reparation because we took back our freedom. So I prefer to talk about applied reparations because it's it's just not true to say nothing's happened. Every single generation, all of our freedom fighters, all of those people we celebrate and commemorate in Black History Month and other times, they contributed to the reparations movements from a historiography perspective. So let us do honour and do justice to that and know that reparations is a process. But every time and each generation, if you like, has a different or a bolder vision of what that freedom struggle is that we're working towards. When does it end? When, when does humanity end? Reparations won't end as long as we have human beings because it's about repair. And those of us who are pro-repair will always be engaged in repair work. Thank you so much. Listen, I think that's been an extraordinary conversation. And um, I love that the listeners have been listening to you. Esther, you, you preach, Gehindi, you reflect. And the two, the two approaches work very much to me. Esther, you've tripped all my eyebrows off the, my head. I mean, I don't want to be... I, them guys are frightened to be in a meeting with you. My goodness, Gindy, you're too laid back. That's what I mean. I to be more bombs, but you're skilled at looking like you... You look like you don't mean it, but you really mean it. And it's been a, my honour and privilege to listen to you both talking and arguing about this stuff. Um, now, as always, it's... To me, it's young people who need to be plugged into this stuff. Mm. If listeners are listening to this and they want to find out more about reparations and the work you're doing, where should they go? Are there books you recommend? Hit them to what's going on. To Hindi first. 
I mean, there's loads of books. I, I'm not going to recommend my, my books because it seems wrong, but I will say, look, uh, oh, what, you can recommend your books. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did talk about reparations in uh, Back to Black because I think one of the things about reparations and like um, uh, Esther's saying, it is a, a broader definition. And actually, if you look at black radical movements, black revolutionary movements, those are reparation, reparations movements. So I did write Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st century but if you want to have like the and like if you want to some antidotes to the the kind of bad arguments against reparations i definitely say walter rodney how europe underdeveloped africa because that tells you look the way africa is today is not by accident also eric williams's book capitalism and slavery really just tells you in detail just how important slavery was to british society those two books are kind of foundational to explain why reparations is a, a must really esther yeah, I agree. I agree with those books. Excellent choices. I would also recommend a book called Slavery Reparations. The time is now claiming justice for global survival and international legal assessment written by somebody called Nora Whitman, Dr. Nora Whitman. I think it's a fantastic book that gives a lot of these arguments, uh, you know, make breaks international law down for ordinary people. Uh, so that we can understand the history of reparation struggles and it is an international assessment. I would also, because I'm, I'm going to be biased because I am part of movements obviously here in Europe and I feel that there's a lot of denial of the movements here in, in Europe. You know, the, the media are not interested in reporting on what we're doing. So I would recommend uh, a chapter that I have in a book called uh, New Perspectives in Black British History. Uh, edited by Hakim Adin, Adi, sorry, my supervisor, PhD supervisor. And the chapter is called The Long Road of Pan-African Liberation to Reparatory Justice that gives a snapshot of the movement in the UK that really goes back to around 1725, you know, in terms of my own PhD research. So I always think it's good to know the history of what's been happening, where we are, where we live. I'd recommend those two. I recommend organising a Black British Lies podcast because I've not really been, although I have these thoughts and conversations with Marcus over Saturday Soup, um, it's very rare to get a group of people who will sit down and talk about something that is deemed so serious by the rest of society. So um, Esther and Kahinde, thank you so much for joining us today and explaining exactly why Black British reparations matters in the broader sense. Although after today, we might need to think about whether we just say why reparations matter. It really feels like an idea whose time has come forward in a disgeneration. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Lenny, once again, it's time for our post-podcast debrief after the guests have all gone home. So, Lenny, your thoughts? Well, it was real fire and ice, wasn't it? Kehinde so cool and calm while Esther was pure fire! But I love the way they were both arguing for the same thing. Yeah, but more importantly, did you agree with their argument? It didn't take a lot to convince me that reparations are morally right, but I think it'll take more than one podcast to work out how you do it, how it would actually work. I feel we've still only scratched the surface, but it feels like an idea whose time has come. 100% agree with that. Now, Marcus, can you tell our loyal podcast listeners what we'll be talking about in our next episode? I sure can. Next week, Lenny, we'll be talking about Black British Mental Health Matters with black people four times more likely to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act than our white counterparts, we are more than ten times more likely to experience a psychotic episode. This will be an important podcast. And who are we going to have on that show? We have the amazing actor, 
David Harewood, who has talked about his own mental health issues previously, and Marvereen Cole, who wrote the essay on the subject for our book, Black British Lives Matter. Sounds like it's going to be a good one.